chapter 18, text 54, Prabhupada Bhagavad Gita as it is. Brahma Bhuta Prasannatana Sochatina Kangshati Samat Sarveshu Bhuteshu Madhbhakti Labate Param. So, the translation for this verse. Um, one who is thus transcendentally situated at once realizes the Supreme Brahman and becomes fully joyful. He never laments or desires to have anything. He's equally disposed toward every living entity. In that state, he attains pure devotional service unto me. Prabhupada's purport. To the impersonalist, achieving the Brahmabhuta stage, becoming one with the absolute, is the last word. But for the personalist or pure devotee, one has to go still further to become engaged in pure devotional service. This means that one who is engaged in pure devotional service to the Supreme Lord, is already in a state of liberation called Brahma-bhuta, oneness with the Absolute. Without being one with the Supreme, the Absolute, one cannot render service unto Him. In the Absolute conception, there is no difference between the served and the servitor, <coughs> yet the distinction is there in a higher spiritual sense. In the material concept of life, when one works for sense gratification, there is misery. But in the absolute world, when one is engaged in pure devotional service, there is no misery. The devotee in Krishna consciousness has nothing for which to lament or desire. Since God is full, a living entity engaged in God's service and Krishna consciousness becomes also full in himself. He is just like a river cleansed of all dirty water. Because a pure devotee has no thought other than Krishna, he is naturally always joyful. He does not lament for any material loss or aspire for gain because he is full in the Lord's service. He has no desire for material enjoyment because he knows that every living entity is a fragmental part and parcel of the Supreme Lord and therefore eternally a servant. He does not see in the material world someone as higher and someone as lower. Higher and lower positions are ephemeral and a devotee has nothing to do with ephemeral, temporary appearances or disappearances. For him, stone and gold are of equal value. This is the Brahma-bhuta stage, and this stage is attained very easily by the pure devotee. In that stage of existence, the idea of becoming one with the Supreme Brahman and annihilating one's individuality becomes hellish. The idea of attaining the heavenly kingdom becomes phantasmagoria, and the senses are like serpents whose poison teeth are broken. As there is no fear of a serpent with broken teeth, there is no fear from the senses when they are automatically controlled. The world is miserable for the materially infected person, but for a devotee, the entire world is as good as Vaikuntha or the spiritual sky. The highest personality in this material universe is no more significant than an ant for a devotee. Such a stage can be achieved by the mercy of Lord Chaitanya who preached pure devotional service in this age. Oma jnana tamirandhasya jnananjana salakaya chakshurun militang jena tasmai si gurave namam.
श्री चैतन्य मनो भीष्ट स्थापित जैन भूतले स्वयं रूपकदा मह्यं दधाति सपदातिक ब्रह्मभूत प्रसन्नात्मा शौचती नकांक्षती समक्षु भूतेषु मद्भक्ति लभते परा सो कृष्ण Uh, speaks of a person, a devotee who has become Brahma Bhuta. Uh, Bhuta means uh, one who has become. So, uh, one who has become Brahman, one who is existing as Brahman, or spiritually. Um, Prabhupada gave the simple example: if you have a lot of money but you don't have access to your money. There's a really interesting French story, The Count of Monte Cristo, where there's buried treasure. Anyway, the idea is if you have money in the bank or a buried treasure, but you don't know where it is, or you don't have access to it, or for some reason, legal or physical or psychological or whatever, you don't have access to your money, then you can't really enjoy it. You can't really live on that level of prosperity. So we are spiritual beings. Krishna explains in Bhagavad Gita 15.7 Mamai Vangsa Jeeva Okay, every one of us is actually part of God. That is very good news. The bad news is we've forgotten that. So we're not able to actually live on that level. We are radically underestimating ourselves. If, you, if we take ourselves to be the body because of our attachment, um, we are... as I said, dramatically underestimating ourselves because we are something far greater than the body. We are something far, far greater than the body. It's like someone who's beautiful but thinks they're ugly or someone who's rich but thinks they're poor. Actually, we are all part of Krishna. So rather than just try to make the body beautiful, I mean, you know, we should keep the body reasonably well-groomed and all that. You don't have to make extra efforts to be hideous. But... The point is, rather than trying to impress the world, I'm so beautiful, I'm so intelligent. Of course, at my age, the beauty thing is not really an option, but still, I mean, even the pauper is proud of his penny. Even someone, no matter what age you are, no matter what your condition is, someone can try to impress other people by their beauty, their strength, their intelligence, their money, their social status. But actually, we are promoting the body. And we're not the body, so why not promote yourself? Why not do something good for yourself? Uh, material life is so silly, people don't even know how to be selfish. <laughs> so, that's the idea. Um, Brahma Bhuta means you actually exist on the spiritual platform. You are in touch with your real self. And it is satisfying. It's... Until we become um, self-satisfied, we will always embarrass ourselves. Because we have to be beggars, whether you're begging for money on the street or begging for attention. In both cases, it's, it's not very dignified. And, uh, for example, if someone is needy, uh, or as they say in English nowadays, high maintenance, if someone, because when we're needy, Uh, we have to go begging for attention. Do you love me? Can you give me attention? Do you care about me? Uh, I'm lonely. 
it happens. I mean, it's in one sense, it's normal in this material world. It's just that it puts us in a very embarrassing situation. Because if I'm needy, if I'm not satisfied in myself, then I can't follow my own choices. I don't have that freedom. For example, if you're very hungry and you want to go this way, but the food is that way, you have to go that way. Or you may, you, you may enter into a relationship which is really inappropriate, someone who is not worthy of you. And so uh, this neediness thing is, uh, you, you, can't be, you can't be free, it's not real freedom. We don't have the freedom to choose what we really want to associate with people that actually are deserve to be our friends. So, um, Krishna says here that, that it, if we understand who we really are, we're actually spiritual beings. We're not really these bodies. You may have heard that. That's one of the esoteric doctrines of the Hare Krishna movement that's hardly ever spoken, that we are not the body. <laughs> anyway, so, if we understand who we really are, then prasannatma, prasanna is very interesting. The word prasanna is the past passive participle from the verb of, uh, from which you get the word prasadam. Prasadam means mercy or grace. So someone who has been blessed or graced, someone who therefore is happy and satisfied, is called prasanna. That's what the word prasanna means. So, a prasannatma, a blessed soul, <coughs> or a soul who is happy, who is satisfied because they've been blessed, they've been graced. Uh, prasannatma. So Brahma-bhuta, prasannatma, and in that condition, the shoshiti, we don't lament. Nakangshiti, we don't hanker. It's interesting because if you think about it, uh, in a sense, our conception of time is really psychologically constructed. Because it's, it's the fact that we lament that creates in our mind the sense of past. The sense of past, because if everything that was existed yesterday still exists today, there's no loss, uh, even though, if you think about it, we can separate two um, different events. One, physical, the other, somewhat psychological. The physical event is, for example, the earth is going around the sun. I almost said the sun is going around, but I will not uh, fall into geocentrism here. But from a phenomenological perspective, in other words, from the, how it looks to an observer, of course the sun goes around the earth, the earth goes around the sun, whatever. It amounts to the same experience. And so, for example, now the sun is setting and the day is ending, as many poets have said, so And tomorrow the sun comes up in another day. So those are physical events. Either if you judge time by the movements of celestial bodies like the sun and the moon, or if you have an hourglass, you know, one of those glasses with the sand falling down, or a watch. If you think about it, all the ways we measure time are merely physical actions. They're just physical actions. But time itself, not the measuring device, not the fact that so much sand has fallen into the bottom of the glass or the sun has gone around or on your watch the 
not those physical events, but the psychological or the conscious perception of a past, present, and future. One does not necessarily require the other. In other words, we can imagine a world in which you saw events like that. You saw the sun, uh, well, the earth going around the sun. It looks like the sun is going around the earth or whatever. You could see all these events. You could see the hands on a watch moving, and yet you would not have the emotional or the psychological sensation of past, present, and future. So what is it that really makes us feel that there is a past? In fact, it's so strong that there's a whole genre of Hollywood movies. I'm from Los Angeles, so ask me anything about movies. Anyway, there's a, uh, there's a whole genre of movies in Hollywood of time travel. Time travel is, really doesn't happen. If you think about it in the Bhagavatam, there are different um, systems of time on different planets. So that, let's say if you go to a heavenly planet and then come back 10 minutes later, you're in the wrong yuga. And so on. But that's not time travel. It just means that things moved at different speeds. But time travel, where you go back to the past or go into the future or a Terminator comes from the future to the past. I mean, it's a whole genre. There, there's like a long list of movies about time travel. But it, it doesn't really happen because you can see that for, the, for those who are in material consciousness, the sense of the past as a real thing, they can't let go of it. And there's that yearning or that imagination that the past is somehow still there and you can go to it. Or the future, even though it hasn't happened, somehow exists and you can access the future. I mean, Hollywood never was very good at philosophy. <laughs> or even at science, actually. So, but it shows you how the powerful, because the past doesn't exist. There is no past to go to. There is no future to go to. Because the future, by definition, hasn't happened yet. There's no future to go to. So don't believe in time travel. But the point here is that even though the past doesn't exist, actually, and the future doesn't exist, they both exist emotionally inside of us. Psychologically, emotionally, the past and future are still in us. And I'm sure you've all read you know, basic books on psychology and all that, being stuck in the past, living for the future. But Krishna says here that when you become Brahma Buddha, when you understand your real self, when you become actually satisfied, then Nashochati, one does not lament for the past. So if there's nothing that ever happened that you want to bring back, like what if I had stayed instead of going? What if I'd gone instead of staying? There's these movies, that's another genre of movie, where someone goes back to their life, and what if I had made a different choice and they, they lived their whole life as, as it would have happened? But if you're satisfied, if you're satisfied with your life, then there's no sense of loss. If there's no sense of loss, there's no emotional sense of past. And similarly, if you're satisfied, then the future is just, you know, more bliss, more bundles of bliss. So even though you may have hopes for the future or plans for the future, but basically you're really happy right now. And therefore the future is not doesn't exist as a real object of your emotions. 
And so in that sense, one lives in the present. One lives fully in the present, and because you're not giving merely one-third of your consciousness to the present, I mean, some people give much less than that. Some people give like, I don't know, like 2%. Some, it's, it, you know, when something happens, like, oh my God, you don't love me anymore. And then it's like everything goes into the past. So, so at any given moment, someone may be actually engaging a very small amount of their consciousness in what's really happening to them. So that's what Krishna is talking about. Because Krishna is here right now. Krishna is right in front of us. And if we live in the present, then you get to be with Krishna. You get to see Krishna. So, and then here's the point Krishna makes. Samaksarveshu Bhuteshu. Equal. Equal to all beings. Samaksarveshu Bhuteshu. Madbhaktiṃ labhate param. One achieves the highest bhakti. Madhbhaktiṃ labhate param. Param means bhakti, the highest bhakti. So, um, it's very interesting here. This, um, this idea of being equal to all living beings has a, uh, again, an emotional and a moral aspect. For example, being equal to all living beings is required for justice. That's what justice means. Uh, you give everyone what they actually deserve. Well, some people, if you gave them what they deserve, you just... Anyway. But, in the sense that you're fair, you're equal to everyone. You're equal to everyone. And you don't try to exploit anyone. We don't hate anyone. We don't, we're not attached to anyone because um, souls, souls are not like a commodity, like, this is my bicycle, don't touch it. Like, this is my soul, don't touch it in the sense of, like, I own this other person. It's interesting how Krishna constantly uses these two words together, uh, aham mama, I and mine. So, um, if I'm self-centered, what does it mean to be self-centered? That's, I mean, the word for self-centered, in Sanskrit they would say ahankara, we translate false ego, uh, but it, it really means something like self-centered. And so, if I'm self-centered, what does that mean? It means I think everything exists for me. Everything revolves around me. Just like, why is the solar system called the solar system? Because soul in Latin means sun, and because it's the sun system. So, if I think I'm the center, then I think that the whole world is just a me system. I mean, everything revolves around me. And because everything exists for me, uh, I'm the enjoyer of everything, so therefore everything is mine. Because what does it mean to own something? It means that you have power over it. You have power over it, therefore it's yours. So, um, the idea that another soul belongs to me, if you think about it, it's really bizarre. I mean, obviously someone who thinks that I'm a soul and this other soul actually belongs to me. You can see that is not a healthy state of consciousness. I mean, someone like that definitely needs uh, help. But we think like that, and so why, do, why would we think something so ridiculous, like some other soul belongs to me? Well, uh, because, of course, we're attached to our bodies. And what are the bodies? The bodies are just these little mode machines. You know the guna? 
And it's like we have all these little gunometers inside in our body, you know, that measure the gunas. So it's like, some of you are too young for that, but anyway, in the Terminator movies. No, we're not too young for that. Okay. Terminator would come, for some reason, amazingly, these future civilizations could actually send this very sophisticated robot back to the past, but they couldn't send a shirt and a pair of pants. You know? You'd think that the you'd think it wouldn't be so so difficult to send some clothes with him. Anyway, so then he he looks for a match. So basically, the way Krishna explains our material life, guna guneshu vartanta, is that our bodies are just these mode monsters. These our bodies are composed of the modes of nature, and they're always seeking mode matches. And so when you meet, if you think about it, when you meet someone, it's like. No, no way. Or maybe. Oh yeah. So, and that's what it's like. We have these little these little guna computers inside of us, and whether it's like another person, food, a place, like I could never live here. I would give anything to own this house. And so that's what's basically happening in the material world. You're just like walking around with these little guna goggles on. I mean, these, and just you know. Just calculating everything. I mean, everything we come in contact with, you know, it's a match, not a match, maybe, no way. And then if, if we get, like, really get like a, a, oh my God, this is a guna match, then we go after, I need that, I want that. Or we become repulsed. Some things we hate, we despise. And so that's all we're doing. It's, it's just like, it's, it's like imagine like these little electric robots that just sort of bounce around. They're inside like a little children's game and they, bounce off some things and get stuck on other things and they're like these little and so actually the more we're attached it's very interesting because when I was a uh, student in Berkeley in the late 1960s and they had a sexual revolution and all these freedoms and in the name of freedom in the name of freedom people were enslaving themselves for example in the name of freedom someone takes heroin and bye bye freedom we can make some free choices that destroy the freedom that enabled the choice. Actually, if you look at the sinful activities, the famous sinful activities, um, why are they sinful? Because they destroy freedom. They actually destroy freedom. If you think about gambling, people people become so addicted to gambling, compulsive gamblers. I mean, it's disgusting. But like in Las Vegas and other gambling places, they actually they, they can't leave the table or the slot machine, and they actually defecate. I mean, they have to have special crews that go around and clean up the gambling halls because you know people destroy their lives. They destroy the lives of their families. I mean, it's a real addiction. So gambling, sex, sex addiction, there's all kinds of 12-step programs for people with sex addictions. I mean, you read in the paper, someone, very respectable position has money, family, power, and they, they totally destroy their life with child pornography or something like that. I mean, it happens all over. And so if you look at these things like uh, uh, illicit sex, gambling, uh, intoxication, I mean, no problem to understand that one, intoxication or uh, meat eating. To give an example of how meat can become an addiction that destroys someone's intelligence, you need look no further than the environmental movement. 
They have all these big global environmental conferences. Now there's going to be one in Paris. And they never, ever, ever talk about the main cause of greenhouse gases, which is, of course, the cattle industry. Animal killing. It's actually the number one cause, according to the United Nations, you probably know all these things, according to the United Nations, the cattle industry causes more greenhouse gas than all the motorized vehicles on Earth. That means cars, planes, trucks, boats, trains, ferry boats, you name it. The cattle industry causes more... And so, it's like insane. I mean, I was at, I was at the University of Florida a couple of years ago giving a lecture, and they have all these, you know, recycle, and here's the trash can for plastic, and here's the trash can for this. And then, and then right next to it, there's a, there's a little rest, campus restaurant with meat. So I said in my lecture that you're causing a hundred times, if not a thousand times more damage by this food than the good you're doing by all these cute little recycling bins. And so, but somehow they are so addicted to meat. I mean, nothing could be a better proof that meat is an addiction than the fact that even to save their own planet, they won't talk about it. They actually won't talk about it. And they never do talk about it. There's a very good movie called, you've probably seen it, Cowspiracy. Instead of conspiracy, cowspiracy. And they actually document this and show that the environmental movement actually is against the animal rights movement. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's incredible. It's really incredible and it, because it's just this demonic addiction. And it causes cancer. Look, okay, it causes cancer, it's destroying the earth, but don't talk about it. <laughs> so the point is, like, what is a sinful activity? It doesn't necessarily mean you're an evil person. I mean, there are evil deeds, like going and shooting a bunch of innocent people. That, I think, is real evil. But when you talk about the so-called sinful activities, it's not just that you know, you're an evil person. It's that you're destroying your own freedom. You're self-destructing. So, and of course, there, there's just like the long... If you think about it, like take material lust. Everyone's interested in that now that I have your attention. So if you think about material lust... Um, everyone in the material world has some degree of lust. And so when it crosses a certain point, it becomes criminal. For example, the case of rape. The case of rape or child abuse and so on. And so it's a question of degree. And someone who has less lust, they can control it. And they can still act as more or less a civilized human being. But then... So, so, so Prabhupada, for example, when Prabhupada defines illicit sex, uh, this is something which unfortunately is not, uh, somehow this information is repressed for some strange reason. But Prabhupada, if you, if you actually look it up, a lot of the time Prabhupada says illicit sex is sex outside of marriage. And sometimes he says it's sex that's not for procreation. So there's obviously the, the, this whole category of illicit sex is a... There's a range of meanings. There's like an entry level. It starts here. Or let's say if someone... So someone that, let's say, engages in sex only in marriage. That's also, according to Prabhupada, uh, following the principle. But of course, that's not the highest standard. 
As one advances more in Krishna consciousness, one comes to a higher standard. And so, so if you think about it, and then there's adultery, there's sex outside of marriage, which often destroys the life of children. So if you think about it, there's all these different ranges, and then when sex is really out of control, it actually becomes criminal. It, it, it is officially criminalized by the government. And so it's interesting, you can see, depending on the consensus values of a particular society, because the law, laws reflect, I mean, if you look at the relationship between societies and their laws, you could say the laws shape culture, but culture also shapes the law. When enough people in a society change their opinion, they change the laws. And so it's interesting, if you study different societies, you see at what point they criminalize sexuality. At what point they criminalize it, and in what range is it, is it still considered to be uh, legal? Perhaps not good manners, perhaps not admired, but still legal. There's actually three stages. There's a stage of criminal behavior, then there's a stage of legal behavior that is not respected, and then there's a stage of behavior which is legal and is respected. And so you can just study different societies to see where they draw the lines. And, and of course the lines move throughout history. If you had like a visual image flashing through history, you would actually see the lines moving based on human experience. Anyway, so, but it's our, it's our degree of attachment. It's our degree of attachment that determines to what extent we do not live in the present. We live in the past or the future and aversion. So Krishna says, so that's one sense of being equal to all living beings. That's one meaning of it. That you see everyone as spirit soul. So you don't lust after anyone. You don't hate anyone. Uh, you would hate them if they were their bodies. But since they are not their bodies, uh, we don't hate them. But only because they're not the body. Let's be honest here. So, but that's, but there's another sense of samaksarveshu bhuteshu. And, and, well, I mean, it's a related sense. And that is, we not only don't lust after some, we don't become attached to people materially, or we don't hate them, but also we treat them fairly. We treat everyone fairly. Krishna emphasizes this. Um, in the Bhagavatam, that saintly people are equal to all living beings. Or Krishna says, Pandita Samadarshana. Wise people see all living beings equal. Equality is a big topic in the Bhagavad Gita. Krishna defines yoga as equality. Samatvang Yoga Uchate, 247. Krishna actually defines yoga as equality. And so, um, so this gets into an interesting point, an interesting challenge for a spiritual society. And that is, Krishna emphasizes very strongly that uh, we have to be equal to everyone, but Krishna also explains that he himself has introduced a social hierarchy. In chapter 4, Krishna says, Chatur Varnya Mayasrishtam. I've created the Varna system, which is a hierarchy. In fact, the Bhagavatam and the Rig Veda, of course, originally, describe how the Varnas are mapped onto the cosmic body of God so that the, the Shudras are the legs or feet, the, the Vaishas are the waist, and the Kshatriyas are the arms or chest, and the Brahmins are the head. So it's definitely a hierarchy. 
So how do you reconcile these two principles of hierarchy and equality? The answer is that it's a challenge, and if we look at Indian history, just among many histories, sometimes they got it right, and many times they really didn't get it right. For example, on the one hand, we find a civilization that is uh, more powerful than any other civilization teaching the oneness of all life. On the other hand, you have what became perhaps the most oppressive social hierarchy almost in history. In terms of a civilization that actually went on for centuries, not just like some crazy sociopath dictator takes over and oppresses people, but a civilization, a culture that goes on for centuries. And so, and at other times, uh, India was the spiritual center of the world and a beacon of light. And so, if we, and the Bhagavatam, the Bhagavatam is keenly aware of the problem. So, as the Romans would say, don't kill the messenger. I'm just reporting this. The point is that, for example, you'll find many verses in the Bhagavatam, such as, uh, what is that verse? Shamaeva hikevalam. What's the first line? That Dharmak swanushitak pungsang vishwak seina katasu jatnot pada yejadirityam shamaeva hikevalam. The whole Varnashram system, if you don't develop love for Krishna, which means to see everyone equally, then it's just, you just wasted your time, useless labor. And there are many, the Bhagavatam, for example, says that just as you put a ring in the nose of an ox, and you can just pull it because it's like unbearably painful, so you can control this huge animal. So you can be, you know, so-called rational human being or this or that, or powerful, and yet one is led, one is dragged by one's attachment to hierarchy. So why this attachment to hierarchy? First of all, uh, because we want to lord it over and so you need someone below you because if no one's below me, I can't do any really good lording it over. So, excuse me, could you please be beneath me? It's just like, let's say you find an expensive car and then, oh my God, my worst nightmare. Now everyone's buying that car. I lost my status because everyone's buying the car. Status means, by definition... Few people have it. If everyone has it, there's no status. So uh, we can also apply that to our sense of Vedic culture. There is a danger, just like Prabhupada, he taught us dovetailing. You know, when we joined, when if you look at Prabhupada's history in New York, people were coming, they were attached to eating, everyone likes to eat. So Prabhupada cooked wonderful prasadam so they could, okay, you want to eat, eat prasadam. The problem is, that unless you're an absolutely pure devotee like Prabhupada, Paramahansa, please raise your hand if that's your situation, and I will make sure everyone understands this doesn't apply to you. But if, but if we're not, if we're not great, pure, liberated devotees in the highest sense of the word, that means we're conditioned souls to some extent. We're still conditioned. And what's the conditioning? No-brainer. The conditioning is we want to lord it over the material world. I mean, what else is conditioning? Prabhupada says we come to this material world because we want to enjoy without Krishna and lord it over. So that means even in a spiritual society, we can, how should I put it, dovetail our desire to think we're better than everyone else 
and we can become very attached. Actually, it's possible. Lord Chaitanya talks about weeds in the garden. The garden is, you know, the devotional creeper or devotion, but weeds grow. And one of the most prominent weeds is thinking I'm better than everyone else. Because I'm a devotee, therefore I'm better than anyone else, everyone else. Therefore, and I want to constantly emphasize that I'm different from everybody else and I'm better than everyone else. And so, or within a spiritual society, it's possible uh, one becomes a leader. It, it can, you know, make one a little lightheaded. Not impossible. This is not, I'm not talking to anyone in this room uh, or anyone in Denmark. I'm just saying it's a danger. It's actually a danger. And so, if we look at the history of India, we see that, I mean, how should I put it? I mean, religions like economies have what are called boom-bust cycles. You know, economic boom, then economic bust. The, you know, that's just the nature of life. Things go up and they go down and they go up again. And so, if we are still in the mode of passion, Krishna actually explains this in Bhagavad Gita. In chapter 18, uh, verse 21, Krishna describes knowledge, jnana, which in this case means something like worldview. Krishna describes, describes knowledge in the mode of passion. Uh, actually, I'll read it to you. Why not? It's right here. Um, yes. Pritadtvaina tu jnana. Nana bhavan pritadbhidan. Viti sarveshu bhuteshu tadhyanam vidirajasam. So Krishna says that you should know that when someone has a worldview or knowledge and passion, when they look at all different creatures, human beings, animals, whatever, men, women, they see the difference. They see that men and women are really different. They see that human beings are really different. Uh, different human... Uh, or human beings and animals are really different. That people of different nationalities are really different. And so on. So, I mean, there are differences in the world. There really are different races, different genders, different ages, different ethnicities. They actually exist. But in the mode of passion, one sees these as reality. That's real. Men and women are really different. And uh, Danes and Swedes are really different and so on. Whereas in goodness, if someone has actually come to the mode of goodness, then, sarvabhuteshu jain aikam bhavam abhyayam ikshate abhibhaktam bibhakteshu tadjyanam bidhisattvakam Krishna says you should know knowledge and goodness means that of course you see the difference. I mean, any fool knows there's men, there's women. Actually, there's men, there's women. And there's human beings, and there's animals, and there's this, and there's that. But, in goodness, one sees, even a material goodness, for God's sake, not to speak of Krishna consciousness, even a material goodness, one sees that within all those different beings, there is the same, there is one spiritual nature. And so if someone, even someone claiming to be a Vaishnava, if someone is still in passion, then what really strikes them, what's really important to them about the world is how people are different. The main thing to know about men and women is they're different. 
The main thing to know about people of different countries is they're different. That's what's really important. And therefore, all these you know, rules and regulations keeping, that's what's really important. To never forget that people are different. Whereas in goodness, if someone is actually in the mode of goodness, then they see, okay, yeah, sure, of course, we have different kinds of bodies. But what's really important is that we're one. That's what's really important. That's what's really significant. The oneness. So, frankly, you can tell to what extent someone is in goodness or passion by just, you know, counting all the words they speak and how much they talk about the differences, the need to keep certain groups down and uh, keep certain groups up, and how much they actually talk about the oneness. Yeah, just, you know, do the math. See what they talk about all the time. So, that's the challenge for, for, for a spiritual society. Because there, is, there are natural hierarchies. Just like parents naturally are in charge of their children. Or, or a guru and disciple. Or, or all kinds of relationships. There are natural hierarchies. But anyone who's really Krishna conscious, even if they find themselves in a higher position, such as a mother or a father, or... In a marriage, I mean, sometimes the, the man and the woman just really get along. Sometimes the man is more Krishna conscious. Sometimes the woman is more Krishna conscious. And so it just depends on the city. But whenever one finds oneself in some position, then if you're Krishna conscious, you don't think you're better than the other person. You don't think you're better than the other person. You think that I had, somehow or other, it's my duty to help this person, but I'm not better than them. Parents, for example, loving parents, emotionally consider their children more important than them. I mean, parents who have emotional problems may think something else. But good parents actually feel that the children are more important. The parents are giving their lives, they're working hard, they're doing so many things. When I think of what my parents did for me, it's, it's just amazing. I mean, they, 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 I, I, you know, myself and I, had, I grew up with three brothers, but my parents, they just, day and night, they, they did nothing, basically. I mean, every, once in a while, they took a little recreation, you know, go out for the evening with their friends, and of course, we'd call them, and we're fighting, you have to come home and drive them crazy. But, but basically, uh, they gave their lives for us. They gave their lives for us. And so, to protect someone, whether it's a woman or anyone else, it doesn't mean to just, you have to dominate them or, or bully them, it actually means the opposite. It means that person is more important than you. And it means that you dedicate yourself to helping that person, not, not to trying to just, you know, um, push them around. So, that's the test of how spiritual we really are. There is a balance, there, there are natural hierarchies, but the real truth, Krishna says, is the oneness. So Krishna gives us a hierarchy, Varna, the Varna system, but he also gives us, he, he keeps preaching the oneness and says, you cannot become fully Krishna conscious unless you really understand this oneness of everyone. And so that's the challenge. Can we maintain natural hierarchies but not become lost in them because if I still want to lord it over I'm just going to jump all over that hierarchy oh my god I love it I love the Varna system because I get to be on top and other people are below me 
And we see this history. We see how the Varna system, historically at different times, became a, a, a violent instrument of oppression. A violent instrument of oppression. That's, you know, just, that's real history, if you care to read it. So, and other times it led people to God. So, are we more passionate? Are we truly virtuous? Just look at, you know, you can, you can, you can measure these things. Prabhupada said he came to start, a, 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 to re, con, reconstitute a Brahmin class. A Brahmin has to be intelligent. He, a Brahmin should think. So we have to be intelligent. We have to keep our eyes open. And we have to learn to act, to act intelligently for Prabhupada so that we can uh, serve his real interest. Anyway, uh, any questions on these points? No refunds. Yes? Uh, you were speaking about uh, the, the future is not existing and the past is not existing, as only the present is existing. So then how we can understand from Bhagavata or the person who is Trikalagya, most present, future and past? Uh, Trikalagya, Kala there, uh, usually as it's understood in the Bhagavatam, refers to different ages. For example, we are Chaturkalagya, we are knowers of four times, namely, uh, where are we now? Fall, winter, spring and summer. That's why stores at a certain point start selling winter clothes, and another time they start selling summer clothes. So, for example, if you look at Vyasa, if you look at uh, the Vyasa foreseeing the Kali Yuga coming, it's not that he said, oh my God, so so-and-so is going to be king and this person is going to do this. No, he saw the season. He saw that a terrible season is coming. And, and therefore, he made preparations in various ways. So, but we don't really have stories in the Bhagavatam where someone knows that, okay, Three years from now, this person is going to walk through that door and ask me for a glove jamun or something. I mean, we don't really have stories like that. Yes. What about the chronologies in the Bhagavatam that Sukadev he talks about in the future? Yes. He's going to be this king and he's going to have this son and this son and yeah, yes. then his prime minister is going to kill him and take over. That's a good point. Yes, yes. So that it seems that there are predictions like you no know, very specific predictions by Sukadev. There are there are predictions like that, and um, how should I put it? Um, and there's also a prediction of Buddha. Yeah. There's also a prediction. Yeah, um, Of course, what the mundane scholars will say that was written after the fact, as we know. Um, in a very limited way, we have that, but but not to the extent of. I mean, if, if you look at it, it's really just a list of kings, and okay, this one kills that one, then he becomes the king, and so we don't really. It's not. It's nothing equivalent to uh, actually seeing the future and actually seeing all the events. It, it basically, the future events. The only specific future events are like Buddha will come, and uh, he will. Uh, trick those who... So the extent that, for example, 
We also have that kind of general future information. For example, there's a television guide. And so we know that at this time, this program will be on, at that time, that program will be on, and so on. Or we know, for example, that uh, three months from now, some world leader is coming to Denmark, or a year from now, there's going to be an Olympic game somewhere and this country will be in charge of it. So, so there is, I mean, to the extent that in the case of Buddha, avatars, like Prabhupada calls that chapter, scheduled incarnations. And so the things that are predicted in, in the case of Buddha is a scheduled, as to use Prabhupada's word, a scheduled avatar. And so certain sages know the schedule. What we don't find in the Bhagavatam, for example, is all the detailed information. Like, like if someone, in other words, if someone, let's say someone actually traveled to the future, or let's say someone before Buddha came traveled to the future and saw Buddha, and then we'd get all kinds of information, as if, if someone was really there and could write, this is what happened in the future. But that's not the kind of information we get. It's more a schedule. And so the extent to which, let's say Krishna had a plan to introduce Kali Yuga, and uh, part of that plan was a particular uh, succession of kings, and so we get basically a list of names. And even those lists are incomplete, because if, if you actually you know, calculate all the times of the kings, it's, it's, it's only a partial list, and it just gives a general intention. It, it, it shows that, you know, that these certain dynasties will come. But it's really, like you said, there's a few very exceptional things like this person will kill, like whenever a dynasty changes, this is why it changed, because this person conquered that person, or this person will kill that person. But apart from that, uh, there's no other information. Nothing like the information that would show that someone actually went to the future and observed everything, came back, and then told all about it. It's just sort of scheduled dynasties. But uh, Krishna is the law of True, true. Yes, Krishna is Krishna. But Krishna knows the future uh, because he's God. Krishna says, Bhavishani, Chasar, Bhutani. Krishna says in the I know future beings. But uh, apart from a list of kings um, and general conditions, that's what we have a list, we have a king list. And uh, a scheduled avatar, two scheduled avatars actually, uh, Buddha and Kalki. And um, and that's it. And so uh, Krishna has a plan. And so Shuka, Krishna revealed this plan to Shuka. But. What we don't find is Shuka claiming that now I'm seeing the future. This, you know, in other words, Shuka, we don't have an actual episode where Shuka travels to the future and witnesses all these future events. He simply gives a list of kings as it has been revealed to him. So it's still not time travel. And it's still not, because if you think about it, for each one of these kings, uh, there were thousands, I mean, you could write volumes on each king. For example, in Denmark or, or any country in Europe, any country in the world, there, if you take some prominent king, say Henry VIII, that sociopath from England, Henry VIII, you know, there, there's so many volumes written about him, and yet we just get a name. 
So it's um, so it's not the same as time travel. It's not that, and, and Shuka never says that I'm going to the future, I'm seeing the future. Yes? Another question is about Brahma Bhutta's states, uh, both here, as far as I can see, and also in, in the 15th, 14th chapter, Brahma Bhutta Ham. Uh, Krishna, as far as I can see, talks about a state of consciousness. I mean, he, he talks about Mamsha Yoga, Acharya, you're fully engaged in devotional service. Then you lead to the. Mamsha Yoga, Acharya, Bhakti Yogi, Sadhguru Yeah, and then you. Yeah, and then, I mean, the, the Brahma states introduced in this 1426, Mamsha Yoga, and then Krishna says, and I'm the basis of that Brahma. So, to me, it seems it's. Krishna is talking about you reach a state of consciousness, but probably ties it together with the Brahman effulgence and uh, you know how. Well, the word Brahman is used. Brahman is used in various ways in the Gita because it means the absolute, and so or or the spirit, and so the word has different meanings. For example, the Brahman also means the Vedas, such as in the. First verse of the Bhagavatam, Tene Brahma Rida, the extended Vedic knowledge in the heart of Brahma. So Brahman has various meanings, but when Krishna says uh, Brahmanohi Pratishtaham, uh, Amritas, let's get that verse here. Krishna sort of tangentially refers sometimes, you know, the soul is Brahman. But um, Krishna generally calls the soul Atma or Purusha. And not, I mean, Brahman is not a common way of referring to the individual soul. And that's why Krishna says Brahma Bhuta, one who has become Brahman. So in terms of the verse Brahmanohi Pratistaham, Krishna to say that that relationship of being the pratishta of something, pratishta means the foundation. It means the foundation of something. And so Krishna describes in various ways his relation to souls. He says that, of course, he says, I'm the source of everything, or I'm the heart of every soul. Or he especially says, the soul is part of me. But to say the foundation, the basis of, I mean, of course, it could refer to the individual being, but it's, um, in that particular context, it's, it seems much more like it refers to what Prabhupada said it does. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to have a hard time together. Well, if you look, for example, Krishna says Brahmarpanam, Brahmahavir. If you look at all the verses in the Gita, it's actually in that book I just did, where I, I show all the ways Krishna uses the word Brahman. And um, he doesn't really use Brahman so much to refer to the individual soul. He uses a more general philosophical term about spiritual nature. Yes? Thank you for explaining so nicely about this oneness and then the hierarchy. Um, how to get a balance 
in our movement also alongside devotees. Uh, we see the temple devotees or outside devotees. Sometimes uh, how to not neglect them but involve them, what positions. How to, we have difficulties throughout our history, right? So uh, how to find that balance to see the ones and not again respecting the hierarchy, senior devotees, junior devotees, qualified devotees, seniors who are not qualified, juniors who are more qualified. How to get that balance? There has to be mutual generosity in the sense that if someone, let's say, as you put, is a temple devotee, uh, there should be a genuine appreciation and uh, appreciation of other others and those who, let's say, I mean, obviously, the overwhelming majority of members of ISKCON don't live in temples. So uh, those people should also respect the people who are maintaining the sense that basically there has to be mutual respect. It's like any relationship. There has to be mutual respect, genuine mutual respect, mutual appreciation. No one wants to feel like they're second class. It's not a, it's not a great sensation. <clears throat> and so I've had, uh, I get all kinds of stories all the time from disciples of mine or just people I know <clears throat> who went to a temple and were treated very much as they were somehow, un as if they were unworthy or inferior. Again, I'm not talking about Denmark, but but it's something that goes on. So if someone if someone uh, still has a desire to be better, I mean, you think about it. In the material world, that's all anyone ever does. I mean, I mean, what else do people do in the material world except try to be better than other people? And so, um, if we're not pure, if we're not really serious about Krishna consciousness then we will grasp at anything, just any justification to think we're better than other people. So the people in the temple should feel they're serving the outside community and the outside community should feel they're serving the temple. If everyone has a mood of service. But again, it's someone is qualified to be a leader precisely when the person is free of the desire to be better than other people. Someone who is attached there. In other words, if I really think I'm a sannyasi, that's uh, obviously, uh, I'm a fool. I mean, I have the duty of a sannyasi. I, I, I've accepted sannyas dharma. But ultimately, I'm not this body. And Lord Chaitanya himself said that I'm not a, you know, Brahman, Kshatriya, Vaishya, Shudra, sannyasi, Vanaprasa, and so on. So, if, if as a guru I think that somehow my disciples belong to me or somehow um, just because I'm a guru I can tell them what to do in areas where I have no expertise like financial planning or, or perhaps marriage counseling or whether they should go to college or not. I mean to think that because I'm a guru therefore I know everything about things I obviously don't know uh, then it's just a question of false pride. If I think that because I'm a sannyasi, I'm better than people in other ashrams, it's, I'm just a fool. So the minute someone really believes I'm really a sannyasi, uh, that means they really don't understand. 
I mean, I, I took sannyas in 1972. Oh my God. I actually took sannyas several years before my brain was fully formed. Because, <laughs> you know, young men, as all women know, young men, their brains aren't fully formed. Anyway, so as soon as I think I, because if I'm, let's say I'm a guru and say I'm surrounded all the time by people who are, you know, offering me respect and it's just, it's just basic Freudian psychology. My super ego becomes all the people praising me. And so I believe it. I really believe that I'm this great person. I really believe I'm a guru. Because if 24-7, if all the time I'm always in this role, I'm, I'm a guru, I'm a sannyasi, at a certain point, if I'm not really mature, I cross a line, I start to believe it. I start to believe that I'm really better than other people. And at that point, obviously, I'm somewhat of a loose cannon, as they say. And that can happen, I mean, to be perfectly honest. It's possible for someone who's doing the service of a guru or a sannyasi to really start believing it. It's a service. It's a very important service. It's a service we should take, or someone's a temple president, or someone's a GBC. They can actually start to believe it, that that's who I am. I really am that. Instead of thinking that it's just a service I do to serve other souls, to humbly serve other souls, someone can really think that I'm above you. I'm actually higher than you. I'm more important than you are. And the hypocrisy is obvious. So, you know, it's something for me, it's something for everyone. If a man thinks he's better than a woman, he's obviously a fool. So that's how you become qualified to be a spiritual leader is that you don't think you're better than other people. That's why you that's, that, that's the first qualification to be a spiritual leader. You don't think you're better than other people. You don't envy other people. You're not trying to lord it over other people. You're just trying to help. For example, I gave that example. You know, parents love their children. Um, they don't think they're more important. They think their children are more important. So that's, you know, a spiritual society in which the leaders, whether it's a guru, a sannyasi, a GBC, a temple president, head bottle washer, you know, whoever it may be, if, I, if someone has a position in a spiritual society and they identify with the hierarchy, Krishna says that in the mode of goodness, you see the differences, but that's not what really impresses you. That's not where you're emotionally engaged. Where you're really engaged, in terms of consciousness, is the equality. We honor the hierarchy. Okay, it's my job to accept a flower garland. Thank you very much. But it doesn't mean I think that I'm actually better than the person that made a garland for me. I'm not. We're all souls. And actually, you know, someone, the way Krishna explains it in Bhagavad Gita, is that you know we have past lives and Krishna says uh, Krishna talks about that uh, knowledge Krishna consciousness from our past life and so maybe in a past life someone has been you know serving Krishna longer but like th this is the way I see it for example if I'm trying my best and someone else who doesn't have a big position in ISKCON is trying their best then that person is equal to me it doesn't matter 
what, because what Krishna values is your effort. Or there may be, there may be a devotee that has no position in ISKCON, but at a given moment, they may be trying harder than I am. That, in that sense, they're, they're pleasing Krishna more than I am, despite all my titles. <coughs> Prabhupada actually taught me that lesson. I, I told the story the other day. I was in Lithuania. I mean, that's not when this happened. Prabhupada never went to Lithuania. But I told the story in Lithuania about what happened with Prabhupada. I, I was in New York with Prabhupada, and um, I'd been preaching at the colleges, and Prabhupada really liked our program. He would talk about it, actually, in his travels. You can, he would talk about our program uh, with Satsrupa tra- uh, preaching in the universities in America. So I went to see Prabhupada, and he was really jovial. Prabhupada always joked with me, but I was, I was so grave and serious. Oh my God, is Prabhupada that... I didn't get, the, I mean, I couldn't really get into the jokes. It's like Prabhupada was trying to like, draw me in in a more intimate relationship, but I was so reverential at that point. So when I walked into Prabhupada's room, he was sitting there, he just finished breakfast, and he was very jovial, and he said to me, sort of this, with this uh, mock, I don't know, this dramatic tone, he said, Oh, Sridhananda Goswami, you are traveling and preaching. I am simply sitting here and eating. <laughs> anyway, so then we started talking. Prabhupada started about our, about my program, and he really liked it. And I was, of course, ecstatic. Prabhupada really appreciates me, so I went back later that afternoon to get more attention from my spiritual master. And so when I went back that afternoon, uh, there was a, a young girl, I guess about, I don't know, 18, 19 years old, 20 years old, uh, and she was cleaning Prabhupada's room. And she was cleaning Prabhupada's room with devotion. So uh, I sat there waiting for Prabhupada to appreciate me more. And of course it didn't happen. He ignored me. But Prabhupada instead was giving all of his attention to that young girl. Because at that moment... At that moment, I was sort of proud and that girl was actually Krishna conscious. And so superficially, I was a sannyasi and uh, whatever, and she was, I don't even know if she was initiated, just some young girl. And Prabhupada, he was so pleased with her. He was so pleased with her. He was, he was like beaming, he was smiling, just like, like a loving father, grandfather. And he said to her, so what is your name and how old are you? And you could just see, he spoke to her with so much love and appreciation. And I, I never forgot that. That at that moment, at that moment, that girl was pleasing Prabhupada much more than me. I had the title, you know, I had the position, but she had the devotion. So, what we need is, you know, we, we can't, because, you know, those are the dangers. And of course, to be spiritual doesn't mean to destroy hierarchies because there are natural, necessary hierarchies. But it is the oneness, it is the oneness that is the prominent feature. As soon as the hierarchy becomes more important, you know, guru, GVC, sannyasi, as soon as that becomes more important than the oneness, then basically we're on the material platform. So, of course, people, you know, people naturally respect someone who's advanced in Krishna consciousness, but the person is advanced precisely because that person doesn't think that he or she is better. <laughs>
In fact, the definition of, you know, Prabhupada's, what he always says about Paramahansa, the highest stage of spiritual realization. A Paramahansa sees that everyone but me is engaged in Krishna service. That actually, uh, these people are better than me. So again, uh, you know, we may not all be Paramahansas, but it's, it's a gradual line. It, it, it's a gradual, it's just, it's a line. So the more we advance in Krishna consciousness, the more we advance, the more we see other people as important. And it doesn't matter, you know, what gender they are. If I'm thinking, oh, you're a woman, you're not important, then that means I'm just a fool in the bodily concept of life. Krishna actually says in the Bhagavad Gita that he says it again and again and again that your duty is born of your nature. Subhava jena, subhava jena konte, nibatak swena karmana. And Krishna says in 3.13, that's in chapter 18, again and again and again, when Krishna describes the, the Varna system, he keeps describing it's born of your nature. And then in 3.13 he says, Sadrasham cheshtate swasya prakite, api. Even a jnanavan, even an enlightened soul, will act according to their nature. Prakitin janti bhutani, creatures follow their nature. Nigraha king karishati, what will repression do? So to deny a man or a woman service born of their nature is to become an obstacle to their spiritual life. Because as we know, we cannot control our senses, we cannot be Krishna conscious unless we engage our nature. Krishna says, it is dangerous not to serve according to your nature. So if I force someone to do another's duty, I am forcing them into spiritual danger in the name of you know, protecting Varnasha. If a woman has particular abilities and I deny her the opportunity to serve Krishna, According to her real abilities, I am forcing her into a dangerous situation. Rather than protecting the woman, I'm actually endangering the woman in the name of protection. It's like that funny movie, Invaders from Mars, where the Marsans you know, are chasing the humans and shooting them and saying, no, we come in peace. It's like, so in the name of protecting women, one can actually ruin the spiritual life of a woman by not allowing her to serve Krishna according to her real abilities and her real nature. This is not, you know, I'm not I'm advocating some wild Amazon army of, you know, Vaishnavis or something. You know, it's like these wild, irrational fears that somehow this evil will be unleashed on the world. So again, you cannot protect a man or a woman. And the same thing for men. Prabhupada didn't come to create a society of shudras where one big leader thinks, whether it's a guru, I'm a guru, uh, I'll give you my card later if you're interested, and uh, we have very reasonable rates. Anyway, you know, whether someone, whether someone is a guru or a GVC or whatever, a sannyasi, whatever they may be, the attitude that, I mean, you know, years, 30 years ago, there, there was one sort of notorious big leader in ISKCON, Sannyasi Guru GVC, who's no longer a sannyasi or a guru or a GVC, who used to preach in Europe, not this country, some other part of Europe, that you don't have to think. You don't have to think. I'm thinking for you. I had a temple president tell me that in the United States. I gave a class which is only like mildly intellectual. 
And this temple president actually told me in front of Prabhupada's Vyasasana, I don't want the devotees here thinking. I just want them to work. That's his conception of a Brahminical society. So, I, I'm not gonna, I don't want to, you know, I'm not attacking any individual. I'm just saying, whatever position, whether you were a husband, uh, or whether you were a mother, or a guru, or a sannyasi, or a GBC, or a temple president, no one should use their authority to lord it over other people. As we know, even in the material world, you know, they have the idea of the ser- like the servant, the head of the corporation is actually serving everyone else in the corporation. So, uh, if we are really Krishna conscious and we're not becoming infatuated with our titles uh, or our gender, gender infatuation, then uh, we want to serve everyone. We want to serve everyone. We actually see, and the more we advance, the more we see ourselves as a servant of everyone. So that's the atmosphere, that's the spiritual atmosphere we should have in our society. And actually, I was very fortunate because I caught sort of like the, the last days or months when ISKCON actually was like that. Before, I mean, I joined in 1969. I, I joined a temple in Berkeley. There were maybe about 18 devotees in the temple, half men, half women. And uh, like the men and women, we were really like brothers and sisters. There was real affection. There was friendship. No one fell down. And... Uh, it was, it was just, it was very beautiful. And Prabhupada, actually, just last thing I'll say, then it's getting late, but um, for me, there was a golden age in ISKCON, at least in my own mind. And it was actually, I caught the last end of it, maybe 67 to 69. Prabhupada lived in America. He traveled, but he had no intention of going back to India, actually at that time. He had no intention. And... He really, he really, it was really a Western movement. I'm not saying Prabhupada, obviously Krishna took Prabhupada to India with spectacular results, but the point is, uh, he was really focused on the Western world. And then Krishna took him to India, to, and the results are, you know, they're amazing, what Prabhupada did there and what's still going. India is obviously in its own category, and amazing things are happening there. But still... I like to remember Prabhupada when he lived in America, focused in America, considered his movement, an American movement, and in his own Pranam Mantra, which he wrote, Prabhupada describes himself as the savior of the Western countries. Sometimes people say, why do you say Krishna West? Why don't you say Krishna North? Why don't you say Krishna South? I mean, obviously, extremely intelligent people ask questions like that as if there is a northern culture. Yeah, the world's now being dominated by northern culture. What does that even mean? There's no such thing as northern culture. There's no such thing as southern culture. There is eastern culture, actually. We can talk about that in various ways. But Prabhupada in his own Pranam Mantra said, Paschatya Deshatarine, the savior of the western countries. And of course, after he wrote that, India became you know, just an amazing success for the Hare Krishna movement. But the point is, there was a time when Prabhupada actually lived there. He knew all the devotees in the Western world practically by name. And if you look, I mean, I recommend Mukunda Goswami's book. It's an ama- you know that book. It's an amazing book Mukunda Goswami wrote. It inspired me very much. Because you see, even Prabhupada's relationship with the devotees back then, when he actually knew them personally, and uh, 
he actually took the role of the spiritual master. And as far as the details of how to spread the movement and all that, he trusted his intelligent Western disciples to figure it out. Figure out how to save your country. And so, anyway, we go, I, I, there's no time to go through the whole history of ISKCON, what happened, the sociology of ISKCON radically changed, relationship between devotees changed, relationships between men and women changed, relationships between devotees and non-devotees totally changed, and frankly, not for the better. That's a whole story. And uh, now, of course, ISKCON, in that sense, has matured greatly, and, and there is real concern about relationships and so on but we still have some lingering um, customs. So uh, that's the kind of movement that will attract everyone, a movement where there's real loving relationship among devotees, hierarchy is there, but it is subordinate to the oneness that comes out of love. It's like in a family, there's a family get-together, a family dinner or something. You know, one brother is wealthy, another brother, brother is, you know, still hasn't got a, a real job. But when the family meets, it's all family. And so that, that, that the oneness that comes out of real affection and appreciation, that is what has to characterize ISKCON, not hierarchy. The hierarchy is there, but, it, but it's only there to serve the loving relationships. It's like, I'm, a, I'm in the sannyas order of life, which basically entitles me to uh, free lunches everywhere I go. So, because, yeah, I mean, that's, I just did the math and I realized this is a great deal. <laughs> so, I mean, we can all be here together. We're all here together, men and women. We're completely safe. We're completely happy together. Why? Because we have culture. We all know that, that how a sannyasi should behave, how a grihasta should behave, how a lady should behave. We have culture. And it's the culture, this culture of chastity, it's not meant to separate us. It's, it, it makes it safe for us to have loving relationships. And if one thinks that all this Varnashram stuff is really meant to keep us apart, they've completely misunderstood Vedic culture. The whole purpose of having rules is to make it safe for people to love each other, to have real friendship, men and women, to just to be like, like, like a spiritual family. That's the whole point of it. And the purpose of leadership is to try to encourage and inspire other people to become leaders. A leader who is looking for followers is not a leader. A real leader is looking for leaders. A real leader is looking for leaders. If, if I, as a guru, if I become attached to having disciples, it's so much fun to have people subordinate to me. Then that's nonsense. Loving parents, their only purpose is to see, Prabhupada said this, is to see their children grow up to be healthy and strong and autonomous. The greatest happiness for a parent is to see my child can take care of himself or herself. And Prabhupada said, I read a letter he wrote, that in this world no one wants to be defeated, but parents are very happy when their children do better than them. 
So if I'm a leader in ISKCON, at any level, guru, sannyasi, GBC, temple president, in my relationship with other people, so-called subordinates, my only wish is to build them up. Not that I want to keep them under me just to gratify my own nonsensical desires. My happiness is to see the people I'm responsible for doing better than me, becoming autonomous, becoming leaders themselves. There's no other justifiable reason for one soul to be over another soul. There is no other good reason except to help that person become great, to help that person become independent, to become free, to become Krishna conscious. So we can tell the sign of a good leader is that a good leader produces more leaders. That's a sign of a good leader, that we produce more leaders. We inspire people to take responsibility. It's like Prabhupada. Prabhupada was such a great disciple of his guru. What's the symptom? He produced so many more disciples. There's no other reason to be a leader except you want to serve other people and make them leaders. Whether they can just be leaders of their families or leaders of a temple, leaders of the world, whatever. And any desire to keep people in a subordinate position is simply demonic. As long as people need our help, we should help them. I mean, if someone is unqualified or irresponsible, we can't just artificially put people in positions. But the point is, if I, as a guru, as a sannyasi, as whatever, if I have any desire to have people beneath me and I deal with them in a way to sort of keep them beneath me, then I'm unqualified. Then I've betrayed the trust they've put in me. And so every one of us, it doesn't matter what my title is. I have this or that title. You know, you can't get back to Godhead with titles. It requires real Krishna consciousness. Anyway, that's my inflammatory message for tonight. And, uh, yes. Yes. I'm quietly reading out this uh, discussion on the Vanashram and it's uh, amazing how Prabhupada stresses. So you, you asked a lot of there in this discussion. So why Prabhupada uh, stressed so much the Vanashram? Because the world is totally out of control. <clears throat> it's like we live in an age when people are like barbarians. I mean, it's the first stage is just like calm down everybody and to establish that, you know, what a Brahmin is and, and so on. I want to end this by praising Denmark. What is your name? Kesha. Kesha, yes, I asked you to go to Denmark. Denmark's a great country. I've been traveling around Europe and it's fascinating for me because for one thing, I've, I'm sort of a historian and Europe has always fascinated me. Denmark was voted to have the best government in the world in terms of honest government happiest people. So, I mean, Denmark is, 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 is actually, even in terms of material life, it's a model for the world. And so why not ISKCON be a model for the world? I mean, this is a great country. I, um, it's like if you have a little child. If you have a child and your child does any little thing, oh, what's that a picture of? Oh, isn't that nice? The parents are so happy, isn't it? If the child just takes a first step or just pronounces a word, it gives so much happiness to the whole family. So rather than engage constantly in one of you know, our favorite pastimes, smashing the, you know, the, the non-devotees and they're degraded, they're this, they're that. I mean, they are. 
But the point is that why not be like loving parents, like any little thing they can do? Why not give credit to the fact that the government of Denmark is a hundred times more Vedic than the government, say, of India? In terms of honesty, in terms of actually providing public services? I mean, the idea is not to smash India. India is doing very well. They have a super Krishna conscious movement. We know India is the land of Krishna. I'm not, it's not India bashing. But why don't we see that in a country like Denmark, there, there is Vedic culture. Obviously, there's a lot of non-Vedic culture. I mean, there's a huge amount of non-Vedic culture. But the fact that people here respect each other. I was just reading today an article saying, why are people in Denmark so happy? And so they analyzed, they actually studied that professional psychologists analyzed it. One of the reasons was because Danish people, in general, not everyone, but in general, they're just, they're nice to other people. Even if they don't know them, they're nice to other people. It's not like typical in third world countries, if you're my family, if you're my friends, I'll do anything for you. And if you're not my family or friend, I'll do nothing for you. Even if you want a government service, which you are legally entitled to, you have to pay me to do it. So, you know, emotional concern is like money. You've only got so much to spend. And so, one of, I mean, from a sociological perspective, one of the main features of third world cultures is that you take all of your concern and you invest it in this sort of obsessive attachment to one's own family and friends. And the rest, and there's nothing left for society. Society, there is no public. The public is nothing. The public doesn't matter. It's just my friends and family matter. Whereas in more developed countries, in some ways more developed, there's real concern for the public. People really care about the public good. And therefore they have a government that provides public services. All that is very Vedic. Prabhupada describes it in the Nectar of Devotion, where he says that love is like light, it expands. And so, you know, the, the fact that people really care, like you follow the rules. Why? Because it's your duty, it's your duty to the public. You, because the public has value. It matters. The public is important. Even if you don't know the people, even if it's not your family, even if it's not your friend, they are still important. That is very much a Vedic quality. Honest government is Vedic government. There are so many things that we could appreciate, so many things that we could admire. Even God himself reciprocates. Krishna himself says, I treat people as they treat me. If you don't respect Denmark, don't expect Denmark to respect you. It's never going to happen. The day that we sincerely, sincerely admire and respect the people we're preaching to, they will begin to admire and respect us. And as far as saying, well, I'm not this body, I'm not Danish, fine. Ultimately, it's true. We're not this body. At the same time, uh, it would be silly to say we don't have a human dimension to our life. And in Bhagavad Gita, check this out. In Bhagavad Gita, Krishna repeatedly calls Arjun Bharata. Guess what? That's a nationality. It's like being Danish. Krishna constantly calls Arjun Bharata, Bharata Shrestha, Bharata Arshava. That's a nationality. Krishna. Bhutanath. 
Krishna showed respect for Arjuna's nationality. That was a country. So yes, we're not this body, that's true. But at the same time, uh, if you don't feel solidarity with the people of this country, they will not feel it with you. If there's not a real feeling of affection, like yes, I care about these people, I respect these people, if we don't feel that, they will not care about us and they will not respect us. It may make us feel good to you know, constantly talk about how bad non-devotees are. Maybe you know, it, may it does something for us psychologically. But, and we should be aware. I mean, obviously we have to know that certain things are wrong. But it's not very promising for having a re- relationship of mutual respect and admiration with the people we're trying to save. Children, just like even a baby. A baby knows perfectly well if the parents love him or her. You know, a child can hardly talk, but the child knows this person loves me or this person doesn't love me. If even a baby knows that, do you think that the people of Denmark don't know it? Do you think they don't know what we think about them? They don't know that, I mean, that we think that everything they do is inferior. You guys don't know how to dress. You don't know how to do anything. Everything you do is wrong. And everything we do is better. And the day you realize that, God will accept you. It just doesn't work that way. And again, the more we go to the Paramahansa stage, the more we go to the Paramahansa stage, the more we feel that they're actually somehow, we admire them, we feel that you, know, you are closer to Krishna than me. I mean, it may not be technically the case, but that's the, that's the emotion of an advanced Vaishnava. If you read the Jaiva Dharma by Bhaktivinoda Thakur in the beginning, where I forget the name, but that person goes to his guru. And the relationship between guru and disciple is not like this hierarchy, like you can't breathe unless I tell you to. It's not like that. There's mutual respect, mutual respect, mutual affection. Anyway, I hope I haven't uh, offended too many people. So, uh, last last thing, then we have to end, yes? Um, Maharaj, uh, very very important thing for me. You are speaking that the uh, past is existing in our emotions and future similar. But if we will understand that we are in present and Krishna is in present with us, so uh, how to and if we can to I don't know cut off, uh, cut off or abandon these emotions or connected to the past or future and that we have to we have to become absorbed in serving Prabhupada's mission and it's our responsibility to Prabhupada to figure out a way to make this movement successful. When I went into Prabhupada's room because we were having success in Latin America. And walk in his room, the first thing he would just say, how many temples did you open? How many books did you distribute? How many devotees? It was like this ecstatic relationship. We have to figure out the way. Prabhupada said, modern society is a headless body. 
The problem is that Iskan, or not, I mean, the devotees are a disembodied head. That's the problem. So we have a headless body and a disembodied head. Because, you know, you can't have one... If the body really has no head, logically, the head has no body. So, it's the head that has to figure out how to reconnect. The body can't figure that out because it has no brain. So, if we're just going to wait for them to figure out it's really us, it's really the Hare Krishnas. <laughs> We're supposed to be using our God-given intelligence to figure out how can we somehow or other save these people. Loving parents that have lost their child or the child's off somewhere, they'll do anything to get their child back. That's what it means to be an ocean of mercy. Vancha kalpa terubhyascha kripa sindhu. A mother, if a mother has... A mother has to feed her child. If the child won't eat this or that, the mother doesn't stop until she finds something the child will eat. The mother doesn't say, no, this is the bona fide food. If you don't like it, starve. That's the ocean of mercy. This is how we present ourselves. If you don't like it, go to hell. Ocean of mercy. The mother, isn't it? She does not stop she, until she finds healthy food the child will eat. That should be our mood. Obviously, the, the mother's not going to give the child poison. And I said healthy food. So we are not going to do anything which is against our principles. Our basic principles. But it is our responsibility to Prabhupada within our basic principles. We have to find a way to reach these people. And when we are thinking day and night, like any loving parent thinks day or night of their child, if we are thinking day and night, how can we get them to accept Krishna? Then we'll be free of past and future. That's the higher taste. That is the higher taste. When you, your whole life is dedicated to finding a way to make to bring the people to Krishna. And you don't stop until you find the way. That is Krishna consciousness. Not like a mother, you don't like this food, that's a bona fide food, then starve. Anyway, thank you for this opportunity.